Wing Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 287. In this episode, we continue our series of IFR questions that we started in part one. That was back in episode 245. Uh, we did this series on Beyond the IFR Checkride, and you know, you folks really enjoyed that, so we thought we'd bring out some more in this discussion. In this one, we're going to answer questions like, if we go around below MDA, am I in protected airspace? Is there a non-protected side of the holding pattern? The missed approach point doesn't mean you can land from there. Those are the three things we're going to talk about. Uh, We're going to bring that up, but first, we're going to go to the pre-flight checklist. Let's do the pre-flight. First, a big shout-out to our sponsor, AviationCareersPodcast.com, and the folks that have paid it forward there. If you're somebody that wants to contribute to the podcast, to helping out people get a rating, say they want to go to college and become an aviation professional, or they want to get uh, you know, a tailwell sign-off, the best way to do that is through scholarships. We have the, uh, the scholarships guide, and those people can get it for free if you donate through the Pay It Forward campaign. It's that simple. For only $10, you can change someone's life by helping them move forward in their career and also in their flying life by helping them get those ratings. Hey, if you're somebody that wants to get a rating or wants to get an additional, you know, tailwheel endorsement, etc., real simple to find out about that, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash free. And we are adding so many new scholarships there for all different things. And there's over $120 million in scholarships. So go check that out. Now entering cruise flight. But joining me today for this discussion are Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, and Chris Pazala. Uh, you know, I'm really excited to have everybody here for this conversation, and uh, we're bringing on uh, some new co-hosts, and I know you folks are excited about talking about, or listening to this conversation about uh, the different things that we have on the plate, like going around uh, below MDA and if you're protected. But before we do that, one thing that I think is really important is to realize that, you know, we all are aviators and we love to fly. Uh, so, uh, first of all, uh, Russ, uh, I, you know, welcome back. And, uh, I know we've taken a break for a couple of weeks, uh, great interview last about flying around the world, but I know you haven't flown around the world, but you're doing some pretty cool flying. So tell us a little bit about, uh, some of the fun, cool flying you're doing. Yeah. I've, I've been doing a lot of flying recently, nothing around the world though. You're right. Um, and actually lately it's been a lot of, uh, like repositioning airplanes for maintenance and, and I have a complaint, you know, the there's no easy way to get home sometimes, you know, but <laughs> someone needs to work on that. You, know, you take a plane an hour away from maintenance. How do you get home? But uh, fortunately, we know people with airplanes and that really helps. I did have a guy pass a multi-engine check ride last week. Uh, so pretty happy about that. And yeah, it's been it's been real good, real good few weeks of flying. 
Awesome, awesome. And uh, and I've been doing some fun flying myself. Uh, I've been uh, flying down the Caribbean quite a bit, uh, around the Dominican Republic, Punta Cana, Puerto Plata, San Juan. Uh, been flying through some hurricanes and around hurricanes, uh, but it's been a, quite a challenge, uh, having a lot of fun and uh, been doing some approaches and uh, having to decide whether we can continue on with the approach. And we're going to talk a little bit about that now and if we can continue to land. Uh, but that's been been a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, uh, just one of the, the cool things that happened with me as far as flying is concerned is I've been meeting a lot of folks, as you know, on Aviation Careers podcast, the sister podcast, a lot of folks getting hired. It's that time, you know, uh, where there's an uptick in the, in the airlines industry and lots of folks are getting hired. And that's actually been really exciting to actually, while I'm out flying at the airports, seeing people I know uh, that are getting hired. So to me, that's kind of a, the community is really cool. And it's really been a lot of fun just in, enjoying time with those people that I've you know, seen or, or I've talked to and coached and meeting them in person. So that's been absolutely wonderful. It's not just about the flying. We do get to see some really cool places. It's also about the people that we get to meet and interact with uh, during those those uh, flights. Well, uh, also joining us today is uh, somebody we've had on as a guest before, and today uh, he's going to join us to talk a little bit about uh, holding patterns in the non-protected side, quote-unquote, and that's Chris Pazala. Hey, Chris, uh, welcome back to the podcast, and uh, so what kind of uh, flying have you been doing lately? Well, hey, Carl, glad to see you again. So in this case, uh, well, I'm flying around the Cherokee, of course, but more importantly and more recently, I just renewed my CFI by retaking the glider instructor check ride, which is a great way to renew your CFI without having to sit through that stupid 24-hour online course. And it's also just a lot of fun and an excuse to go fly gliders. Um, a lot of fun to take a check ride? Believe it or not, yes. Actually, the glider check ride uh, is one of these, I don't want to say easier, but certainly one of the simpler check rides. Uh, so I find that a lot more fun than sitting at a computer, clicking on the button for 24 hours, pretending like I'm reading the... Uh the CFI renewal stuff. Well, that's pretty gutsy of you. Well, I'm glad you did that. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about getting your glider rating in a future episode. I'd love to have you back on to talk about that. Uh, that sounds really exciting because we've all kind of thought about doing that at some point. Really cool stuff. Well, thanks, Chris. And uh, also joining us tonight is Tom Frick, who's been, uh, I know you've been around and uh, out and about doing a lot of flying in many different ways, uh, both in small airplanes and, and uh, fast jets. So what have you been doing lately here, Tom, flying? Yep, still doing the business class jet thing and uh, bouncing here and there and everywhere. It seems, um, you know, it's a it seems to be a feast or famine thing. So, uh, in the in betweens, when I'm in the famine from the jet, it's uh, in the Cessna and in the Pipers and and you know doing as much teaching as I possibly can. So you know, living still both of those worlds. Um, I did recently get a chance to fly commercial, and um, that was different. You know, to to. Uh, you know, get back in the back seat again and just go somewhere. Uh, my wife and I went on a went on a vacation, and and uh, it was nice. It was nice to go someplace and just you know um, see how the airlines are doing. Um, you know, for the times that I was traveling, the airports were packed, all the planes were packed, and it seems like things are starting to get back to no quote unquote normal. You know, so um, it's good to see. It's good to see that the aviation industry is bouncing back and that that uh, you know this thing's going on. So yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it is good to see, and it's neat that you do both of those things, both those worlds, and uh, people that actually fly bigger planes, faster planes, do love to fly smaller planes and still get involved in aviation from a, 
an instructional standpoint. I, hats off to you there. Um, but uh, anyway, let's move on to our topic today and in uh, our talking points. It's really cool. Uh, I know Russ actually is the one that thought about this topic because of uh, what's been going online and some of the things he's talked about. So, Russ, uh, why don't you take it away from here as far as uh, what our talking points are uh, in our introduction? Maybe introduce us to the first topic and go from there. Yeah, Carl. Uh, I'm active in uh, a lot of the aviation forums, discussion forums, uh, you know, Facebook groups, that kind of stuff, social media. And when you're talking about IFR flying, there are just so many questions that just keep coming up over and over and over again. And there's not, it's not the, the basic stuff. It's maybe the next level, which is what we, what we kind of talked about, uh, I think it was about a year ago in the previous episode. Um, but these questions just keep coming up. And so I figured, oh, let's let's pick a few of them and put them in a podcast. So uh, yeah, we've got kind of three today. Uh, let's kick off the first one here. And it's it's this question of here, here I am on an in- instrument approach. I'm coming down and it's cloudy. And I, I get, you know, close to MDA or DA. I see the runway. I descend lower. Okay. And for some reason... As I'm descending towards the runway, now that I'm below DA or MDA, I have to go mist. Uh, whether you know, a bus pulls out on the runway or uh, tower says go around or yeah, I, you know, my, my, I've noticed my landing gear isn't down or, or whatever the situation is, I, I have to go around from this point. And I'm below DA or MDA. Okay, that's really important here. The question is, am I protected? <laughs> what, what do I do? Um, you know, it is, does the TERPS, you know, the, uh, pr- the procedure, uh, design and evaluation, does it account for this condition? And yeah, that's, that's an important thing to understand. And really the, the short answer is you're not protected or not very well and not very much. Okay. Uh, protection on this approach generally ends pretty much at the DA or the MDA at the, at the missed approach point. So, uh, so we're left with, well, what do we do? Uh, you know, I, I should say that, you know, you do have a tiny little bit of protection, but it's not much. I mean, it, as far as you, you, we got two conditions here, we have, you know, protection vertically above obstacles, right? And laterally, I mean, there's the mountain ahead of you, right? So, so how much uh, slop basically is built into this evaluation and it's really not very much. It can be vertically. It can be as little as a hundred feet. You could, when you start your missed approach, you could be as little as a hundred feet over some obstacle. So that's not much if you're descending below it. Okay. Now, obviously if you're right over the runway or something, there's not much to hit there, but the starting you know, amount of clearance there is as little as a hundred feet actually. And, uh, laterally, once you get past about 0.3 miles past the missed approach point on a GPS approach, you are no longer in the um, in kind of the protected part of that that missed approach. Uh, it it's it gets rather complicated and it varies by um, by type of approach and such. But you can see these values are not big. Okay, so if you get below that DA or MDA, you really kind of are in no man's land. Uh, so so what do you do? All right. Well, there are two options that are usually posed in these discussions, and one is fly the regular missed approach seems reasonable. Okay. You try to get back to the missed approach as well as you can. Uh, the other options, well, fly the fly departure procedure or fly a, uh, you know, fly the obstacle departure or or something off, off that runway. Uh, 
I'll address that one first because it's quicker. <laughs> okay. Uh, from a from a purely uh, procedure design standpoint, you know, an obstacle clearance. You're not talking about air traffic control issues here. Um, but from that standpoint, yeah, you could fly the departure procedure and probably be perfectly fine because of course a departure procedure assumes you're starting on the runway and if you're going missed you're already at some uh, height above the runway so you have more more buffer there right um however have you briefed the departure procedure i mean is that part of your sop when you come down final to brief a departure procedure in case of a missed past the da uh, that may be for some but it likely isn't for many pilots uh, plus, can you even have that loaded in your GPS simultaneously would be another, uh, another concern. <laughs> you know, how do you do that? How do you pull that off? So that would not be my first choice, particularly. Uh, so let me go back to fly the regular missed approach. Yeah, that's, that's what you're going to want to try to do, okay? What you need to understand, though, is that the further you are um, along the missed approach course, below the DA or MDA, the less protection you have. So your first goal is really to get back up <laughs> to that. I mean, mainly vertically, right? So climb above the obstacles and, and such. Uh, fortunately, uh, most missed approaches are based around a 200 foot per mile climb gradient, 200 feet per mile, not feet per minute, like we're used to talking about, but feet per mile, okay? Uh, and why that's fortunate is because most of our airplanes and most configurations at most reasonable density altitudes and loading and such can probably beat 200 feet per mile. Um, if you're flying a 172 at 90 knots, because that makes a nice round number, um, that's only 300 feet per minute. Okay, so most 170s can do 300 feet per minute in most environments, right? And if you're in some light twin and you're climbing 120 knots, that's 400 feet per minute. So not necessarily a big problem. If you can beat that, the quicker you can beat it, the quicker you're up to where the you're kind of rejoining the missed approach from below, sort of, if you think about it that way, kind of like capturing a reverse glide slope, sort of, that isn't depicted. Uh, so initially, a VX climb might be recommended, you know, get up pretty quick. Uh, it isn't really very hard to figure out how much you, how far or how high you need to climb to rejoin it. I said 200 feet per mile, so that means if you are a mile past the missed approach point, once you get, you know, gain 200 feet, you're probably okay. <laughs> you know, two miles past it, gain 400 additional feet, and you're probably okay, right? You want to make sure you're uh, you're making all the turns and such that the missed approach procedure specifies, and and that will be the best uh, solution for. You know, for resolving this this problem that you've either you've put yourself in or, or some you know other uh, uh, factor has, has put you in. But I do want to talk about real quickly though. We have some approaches that have climb gradients required that are in excess of 200 feet per mile. Uh, you'll see this on the chart. So missed approach uh, requires a climb of you know 300 feet per mile to some altitude, right? Uh, this is this is actually. There's a hidden thing here that is really important to realize. Um, if you, obviously it's going to be harder to get back on a miss because you need to climb steeper. But the real important consideration is because there's a climb gradient, that means there are actually obstacles out there. Okay. 
a normal missed approach with this 200 foot per mile climb gradient, you could be doing that here in Oklahoma where there's nothing around for a hundred miles. Right. And so even if you didn't maintain 200 or you were slow getting up there, you're probably not going to hit anything. You could probably climb at hundred feet per mile and be fine. Okay. But the only reason that a climb grading is an increased climb grading is on a missed approach, like 300 feet per mile or 400 feet per mile is because there's an obstacle. So when you see that on the chart, you know, there's something in the way, you know, there's something out there. Unfortunately, as the pilot, you don't know where it is. Um, it could be just a couple miles off the departure end. It could be, you know, closer to the, you know, the holding pattern. It could be way out there. So you don't know. Uh, but there is guaranteed to be something tall along the missed approach path. Uh, since you don't know where it is for this reason, I'd be kind of reluctant to, uh, to do an impromptu missed approach below the DA or MDA on something with a climb gradient. I think your, your, uh, the, the risk, the risk assessment is much worse. Okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you say, you know, I'm gonna, land somewhere anyway, I'm going to land on the taxiway or, you know, steer around the bus or, yeah, I don't know, something, you know, you're flying into Aspen, you, you don't want to go missed after the missed approach point, you know, that kind of idea. So, um, but I, I think that's, that's a real important uh, thing to understand. And back to the beginning of that topic, there is no obstacle protection if you're below DAMDA on an approach. It's, it's not designed. You are in a visual part of the approach and you are not necessarily guaranteed anything. So, um, and I guess this is the question I think a lot of people have is, um, you're providing your obstacle clearance by your eyeballs, your, your visual at this point. Uh, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand is now you're, it's just like being on a visual approach, right? Uh, you're, you're providing that protection yourself by making sure you're seeing and avoiding those obstacles. Um, but I love the fact that you brought up this, what, what happens if you do go below and what do I do next? And, and how do I, how should I go around to keep myself safe? And I, I, I love all that, you know, you discussed as far as, you know, looking at the obstacle departure procedure and seeing, uh, you know, if you have a, a non-standard climb gradient, you're saying 200, uh, uh, feet per nautical mile. And, uh, and a lot of people also, I guess, would ask, you know, how do you determine your climb, you know, rate? And sometimes it's a good idea, I think, to figure out what your rate of climb would be on your VSI prior uh, to doing that go around. And uh, it's actually, there's charts on it. You know, you could look that up or figure it out in your head. And, you know, the way I do it, maybe, Rush, you have a better idea, is, you know, I just divide my you know, my ground speed by 60 and then multiply that by the, the climb gradient. Uh, so for instance, if I'm doing 90 knots, uh, divide that by 60, that's 1.5, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But you have to realize, of course, that it is ground speed. Like you did, you said ground speed and it's important. It's ground speed, not airspeed. You're maybe climbing out at 90 knots, uh, indicated, right? Uh, if you're at a high altitude airport with no wind, 90 indicated is maybe a hundred knots true. And if you got the wind, it's 100 knots ground speed, right? Uh, so that makes it harder. You got to climb steeper. But if you're, you know, if you have a normal headwind, you know, you got 10 knots of headwind, and you know, maybe you're only climbing out at uh, 80 knots ground speed or something like that. So uh, it's important to realize it is ground speed. Now, 90 is a nice number. It results in one and a half. 120 results in a multiplier of two. 
So, and that fits the range of most climb speeds in the light general aviation aircraft that are flying IFR. So if you can remember those two numbers, you're pretty well set. I like the fact you said that because I think, I think that's a good idea is to have that in your head uh, beforehand. And also, uh, if you are going to DSM below MDA or DA, you know, just make sure you uh, realize the, the risk you're taking. You know, you're seeing and avoiding, right? Um, but realize also that using these tools, uh, you can keep yourself safe. The other thing that's interesting, I know people are going to say this, well, how about all these engineered missed approaches that you see it, uh, like in somebody's part 135, 121, that's different. You know, that, that's been calculated for all these approaches at all these airports that have been submitted to the FAA. That's a whole different process that's, that's gone through, and I know we're going to get some comments on that. I don't know if you can speak towards that, uh, Russ, but there is that process I, I think they have to go through. Yeah, I can't speak in any real detail on that. You know, when you're talking about uh, one engine inoperative type misapproaches and those kind of things, those are not well. They they may be approved by the FA, but they're not they're evaluated in the same way that the rest of the the chart is. Uh, you know, the, the the normal approach chart does not account for situations like that at all. Um, so if if however your company does have you know authorized you know. What, what would you call that, uh, non-standard missed approaches or something like that, then, then that's certainly an additional consideration, yeah. Right, right. Like, a, you know, a special departure procedure, a special engine failure procedure, whatever it is you want to call that, which is, uh, but uh, just to make sure, you know, because there's a lot of guys that listen to this that are like in 135 and part, you know, part 91 and K and, and some 121 guys out there. Uh, but we're trying to, you know, the GA pilot, uh, we're out there, we're flying our, our Mooney, you know, what do we do? You know, how do we keep ourselves safe? Yeah, I wanted to add in there, uh, Carl, that uh, one of the cases that this could really be an important uh, consideration is, yet we study for the instrument check, right? right? And when can you go below the MDA or DA? And it's, you know, if you see the runway or the runway lights and the result, there's like 10 things, right? And you got to memorize them, <laughs> right? And and it, if you see those, you can go down to 100 feet above the runway and, you know, and it goes on like that, right? Uh, well... That's descending below DA and MDA. That's exactly what we're talking about. So you see, you know, the approach lights or whatever. So you descend lower, and then you never see the runway, and you have to go missed. You're in exactly the situation we're talking about here. You're perfectly legal to do that, but if you have to go missed because hey, the runway never appeared, you're in the situation. So that's. That's something to think about, <laughs> you know, if the weather's really low and it's pretty iffy and you're wondering, eh, I don't know. it's right at minimums. So I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do it. What are you going to do if you have to go missed 100 feet above the ground? So this plays into that whole, you should always be thinking about the missed approach. There you go. Always be ready for the mist. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that was that was actually a, a good discussion, and and I I like the fact that uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions about this online, and and. I think that was really helpful, so I appreciate appreciate you bringing that one up. Yeah, so the next topic uh, that comes up all the time on discussion forums, and especially when we're studying for the instrument check ride, and we're learning about holding patterns, especially the parallel entry to this holding pattern. Uh, what do you do after you cross a fix on a, on, a, uh, on a parallel entry? You go into the unprotected side of the holding pattern. So the question is, is there really an unprotected or non-protected side of the holding pattern? Uh, this, this comes up kind of all the time it is it's it's uh worded as like this dangerous area you know do not cross into here uh well fortunately uh 
we have Chris Pizal here as well, and Chris wrote a book on the topic. So, Chris, do you have anything to say about the unprotected side of a holding pattern? Well, hi, Russ. Uh, thank you for having me again. So uh, that was uh, one of the hardest questions to answer uh, was, you know, how much space does a pilot have uh, protected in a hold, and th is that side unprotected? And uh, I don't have the number now, but there's actually an FAA publication that air traffic controllers use to determine how much space to allot. And that actually includes space on the non-holding side. So I use the terminology holding side and non-holding side. The holding side is larger, and then the non-holding side, of course, is smaller, but it's still pretty significant. Even for a GA aircraft, it's over a mile, uh, oftentimes mile and a half, two miles, depending on the speed of the aircraft, the altitude, and the environment it's in. So uh, you absolutely can use that space. Uh, in order to make sure that you remain where you need to be, you just have to follow the uh, recommended entry procedures, fly the, comply with the speed restrictions, and make sure you make your turns in the correct direction. And the biggest uh, issue we see with aircraft accidentally exiting the protected airspace, it's not from drift or because they did the wrong entry. It's usually because they made the turns in the wrong direction, uh, left when they should have gone right or right when they should have gone left, especially with uh, computer technology, uh, GPSs, because a lot of folks will program it and they will uh, forget which way to put it, uh, especially with the airline pilots. That's where we usually see that occurring. Interesting. So, Chris, question. Is that, um, so again, is there such a term, though? I mean, as far as the, un we hear this a lot, and I've never really seen it in any publications except on discussions. Is there such a term, you know, the unprotected side of the holding pattern? Well, there's no portion that's unprotected, so short answer is no. It would just be uh, holding, non-holding. Yeah, I like that terminology too, Carl. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. Uh, yeah, holding and non-holding would be the far better, you know, less uh, death-defying you know, term, right? Less scary term. Because holding patterns are huge. I mean, compared to the speeds we normally fly this in, I think, uh, especially when we're training, of course. I mean, you're flying the Skyhawk around and holding at 90 knots, right? Uh, holding patterns are enormous because they're designed for aircraft flying the maximum holding speed, which up to 6,000 is 200 knots indicated, 200 knots indicated, you know, at 6,000 feet is, I don't know, 220 knots true. And they account for a tailwind, you know, from the worst direction. Uh, they account for horrible technique, <laughs> you know, late turns. They account for the worst, uh, like if you're talking about like a VOR intersection, you know, the worst configuration of nav aids. I mean, even when we're talking about GPS, it's still going back to this, these things that were designed in the, I don't know, the 50s or something, right? So, I mean... They're gigantic. They're many, many, many miles uh, in addition to what you probably need even in your worst day <laughs> when you're not thinking ahead. So yeah, they're, they're, they're huge. Uh, but absolutely, both sides are protected, uh, as Chris was saying. Uh, you know, and vertical um, uh, clearance on these is 1,000 feet too. So it's not like you're you know, just skirting, uh, skirting along the tops of antenna towers. You know, I was wondering, you know, you, you talked about something before as far as this holding patterns book that you wrote, and um, I think a lot of people do get confused on this. Um, is there any way someone can get a hold of that book? I was wondering, because I know we talked about it a couple times. There's a couple videos we have, and I'll have a link to that video we talked about. Um, but uh, is there any left around that we can actually purchase? So it, it's no longer on the Amazon marketplace, but a number of third-party vendors uh, still make it available. So uh, you can still get a copy of it. Uh, the book has a wide range of applications, including dual VORs, DME, 
And gradually I'm going to be phasing that book out and looking to make a new one down the road that's going to be more dependent on GPS and FMS, uh, so it would be a little more practical. So that's, that's why it's not on the Amazon Marketplace. But if you'd like a copy, you can still get it from some of the uh, third-party vendors. So, um, and what's the name of the book again? So that's the Advanced Guide to Holding Patterns which is pretty much the only thing you can call a book that's 79 pages on holding patterns. It, it also got FDA approval as an over-the-counter sleep aid. So sleep it's, aid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so, the, the whole third, of the, the middle third of the book is examples. That's part of why it's such a big book. Well, 79 pages on holding patterns has got to be pretty in-depth. <laughs> it is. It is. That's for sure. Well, awesome. I, you know, I appreciate you doing that, Chris, for putting that together, because I, I thought it was a great resource, especially for this question, you know, that we're talking about here. Yeah. So I would just uh, kind of, I think, conclude this, unless, Chris, if you have something else you wanted to add, I'll conclude that topic by just saying, don't be so worried about it. Do the correct entry. But man, I've seen people really get kind of stressed out about going, you know, three inches on, you know, on the other side of the line there. No, it's, it's okay. <laughs> fly your plane, fly the way you, you've been taught and you'll be fine. Yeah. And that's what I've told pilots. And when I, when I used to lecture on this, uh, same thing, it's, you know, fly the aviate, navigate, communicate, do it in that order. Great advice. I tell you, it's, it's, uh, it, the, the holding pattern, I tell you, is something that so many people get nervous about. And, uh, you know, as far as how do I, how do I do a holding pattern? And, you know, uh, there's one. I'm going to be in the non-protected side of a holding pattern, uh, and I think this is good clarification on that because uh, it's something that I still get quite. I've been getting this question for so many years. Uh, I'm actually thinking of including it in my interview prep that I do for the airlines because uh, I think a lot of people are under the impression there is such a thing as a non-protected side of the, of the holding pattern. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm going to use it as a tool. Hope you don't mind that, Chris. There you go. And actually, I, I looked up I looked up the size, and uh, if you picture the um, the you know the inbound course, I'm diagramming with my pencil for all the listeners that can't see this, but but uh, if you if you picture the inbound course, the non-holding side has the smallest side holding pattern that's actually being used uh, has three and a half miles of protection, uh, you know, parallel to that line, I guess, three and a half miles with actually an additional two mile buffer, which is called a secondary area, but it's basically a buffer area. So, I mean, up to five and a half miles on the side, 172, you got to be way off course to, uh, to even get, get close to hitting something. I mean, five and a half miles of going the wrong way at 90 knots is a long time. So... <laughs> Yeah. So now if you're flying your Learjet and holding at, you know, 200 knots indicated, you know, a little more concerned, but hopefully you have a little more training at that point. So, uh, the last point that I, that I picked out for today's show is this concept of, you see it sometimes I got to the missed approach point and I just got the runway in sight, but I'm 500 feet above the runway. Cause it's, you know, an LNAV procedure or something. I'm 500 feet above the runway. How am I supposed to be able to land from here? I'm 500 feet over the threshold of runway. There's no way I can land. This is ridiculous. This is a stupid missed approach point. Well, it's not, <laughs> um, the, of course you do usually get responses. Well, I could make it, you know, I could do it in my, my soup, my IFR super cub, but, but, uh, that's not really what we're looking for here. Okay. You probably can't do it using uh, normal rates of descent that are required to descend below uh, MDA or DA. Um, so the key here is we've kind of been lulled into having this question as a result of GPS approaches, really, uh, the missed, and I'll explain that a little more in a minute. The missed approach point is not in any relationship a point where you get to and then 
can expect to be able to land from. Okay. Um, it's merely a point where if you get to that point and you haven't already seen the runway and haven't already begun your descent, then you need to start the missed approach. That's all it is. Okay. And I said, we, this question seems to be coming up more and more with GPS approaches because most of our missed approach points when the GPS approaches at the runway end. And so mentally we think, Hey, the runway is still in front of us. You know, I could probably still land maybe, but if you look at some VOR, especially VOR approaches, uh, man, you get missed approach points in all kinds of places. I used to fly at an airport where the missed approach point on the VOR approach was the VOR itself, which is very common. Um, and the VOR was past the departure end of the runway. So the far end as you're coming down. Okay. So basically you flew over the runway for the last you know minute or two of, the, of your approach. You just couldn't see it because you know, you're you know, in the clouds or whatever, but, uh, there's no way you're going to land. You'd have to turn around and land, which is, you know, silly. So, um, there's no relationship between two. You'll have uh, missed approach points of VORs that are, you know, all off the side of the runway, you're halfway down and, you know, a half a mile off, you know, off of alignment. So, uh, so that idea is just right out. <laughs> okay. There's no expectation you could land from a missed approach point. Um, but what is a good uh, indicator of where you might be able to land if you have it on the approach is this VDP, this visual descent point. Okay. And from the, from a visual descent point, if you see the runway by that point, you are in a position to make a normal descent to the runway. It's not a missed approach point. I see that, that come up sometimes. You don't have to go missed there. Uh, you, if you see the runway after you've passed the, the VDP, you're closer to the runway and you think you can still land, you're allowed to, at least in part 91 operations, you know, uh, corporate and airlines may have different rules, but you know, some basic part 91 operations. If you think you can still land, you can go ahead and land. Uh, you don't have to execute a missed approach at the visual descent point, but if you do see it, see the runway, you will have a normal descent, normal being you know, usually a three degree glide path. Uh, or if the, uh, the Vazi or the Pappy is set for something different, it'll be aligned with that usually, but, um, but it'll be a normal descent. Uh, so that is the point at which you can make that determination. That's a good reference for that. Uh, I do know some people treat that as a misapproach point. If they get to the VDP and they see, uh, Hey, I, I don't see the runway. And then a quarter mile later, oh, I see the runway too bad. I'm going missed already. Uh, because I th think of the descent would be too steep and that's fine. Uh, but, but it's not a requirement, uh, but that would be the, the, uh, indication of a reasonable place to land, not the missed approach point. Uh, for anyone who isn't sh quite sure what we're talking about here, uh, the visual descent point is kind of that bold V in the, uh, profile view of the charts, both on, uh, the FA charts and Jefferson, a kind of a bold V. And if you look, I mean, it's usually a mile, mile and a half or so from the runway. It depends on the, the MDA. You'll only have a visual descent point for a non-vertically guided approach. So a localizer, VOR possibly, or an LNAV, um, yeah, uh, only line of minimums on a GPS approach. Uh, because if you're flying an ILS, you just go and keep flying it down to the runway. There's no point in having a VDP. So it's important distinction to understand. I think uh, difference between that, that missed approach point is not a place where you can land from and a VDP definitely is.
A lot of people, though, um, talk about this VDP that they calculate, I think, and they kind of get confused yeah. as far as that's concerned. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that, maybe? Yeah, I can. Um, so actually charting a VDP requires some specific conditions that uh, you know, there has to be a distance source. So if it's a ground-based procedure, you have to have a DME source. Of, you know, have to have a way to tell where you are, of course. Uh, uh, there are some obstacle-type requirements that um, are required in order to chart the, uh, the VDP. But so if you don't see one on the chart, may be totally benign or just, you know, some, some, uh, rule that prevents it, or it could be, there's a bunch of obstacles in the way. And so that thing, you know, but you don't really necessarily know. Uh, however, you can calculate your own, uh, pretty simply. Uh, I think most, most folks use the 300 feet per, per mile. You know, so if you're, if you're, uh, height above touchdown, 600 feet, your VDP is about two miles away, you know, rough numbers, right? Is that how you do it, Carl? Absolutely. That's, that's how I do it. You know, it's interesting, I was going to mention, you know, in the airlines, some have changed over the years. We used to calculate our VDPs, and uh, in most of our databases, if you look at some of the approaches, they they actually have a descent angle, say, of 3 degrees or 3.2 or 3.1. And uh, and we actually, that's programmed into our, our FMS, and it we use that as guidance, but we derive... Uh, an altitude based on, you know, whatever the decision altitude is, plus a certain number of uh, feet, depending on which airplane we're flying. Uh, so it actually makes it easier for us. We don't even do, we don't do that whole math thing anymore. We'll just add 50 or we'll add 100 or 500 even to that, uh, depending on, on what it is. If we have an actual, uh, you know, vertical path that's charted, that's actually in the database, uh, we can't do, we can't, as a matter of fact, the company I'm working for, we can't no longer level off anymore. We have to have to make a decision based on that. No more dive and drive at your, your company. No there, more huh? dive Carl. and drive. <laughs> okay. Good. Good. Stabilized <laughs> approach. Yeah. But, um, how about, you know, I, I know Chris, you, I don't know if you wanted to comment on some of the airlines you've worked for, but what have you seen as far as these VDPs and this constant descent to final approach fix that we call CDFAs, I think is another term. Uh, right. So I've worked for two carriers recently, and uh, it's the same uh, concept as your carrier, which is we're trying to get out of this uh, process of, of dive and drive, and we're going to a, an automated process that is uh, giving us a vertical glide path. Uh, now, this is a little different than an ILS, and here's the difference. We just talked about the airspace protected by an MDA, or what's not protected. In the ILS world, there is a small amount of protection below the decision altitude, which allows an aircraft time to initiate the go-around and the missed approach. Especially for an airliner, that can take 50 to 75 feet. I think 75 feet is the allowance. Uh, so what happens is when you take an aircraft, let's say an airliner, and you want to do a vertical path to an MBA, the aircraft can't get to the MDA and then suddenly level off or go around. So that's why you see air carriers adding 50 or 100 feet to that, is to give the aircraft time to initiate its go-around. It says, okay, if, if I'm 100 feet above the MDA and we don't see the runway, we're going to have to start the go-around. And once you start that go-around, you're going to have to go. There's, even if the runway comes in sight after that, uh, there's no safe opportunity to land. Best thing to do is to go around and then make your decision if you're going to go try it again 
or if you're going to go to the alternate at that point. Yeah, Chris, I'm really glad you brought that up uh, because that that uh, that kind of goes back to the first topic we talked about. If we're below uh, DA or MDA, right? Uh, and there is no protection for that. There is protection in exactly the scenario you were talking about. Uh, if you initiate the the missed approach at the DA, there is it's expected that you're going to sink a little bit in the process. Remember, DA is a decision altitude. You make the decision. It's not a minimum altitude. Man, I, that could be a whole other topic. I should have added that as number four. <laughs> Think about that one. But um, you make the decision at decision altitude and because airplanes have inertia and engines take time to come up and reconfigure and all that kind of stuff, it takes some distance. And yeah, but something like 75 feet is perfectly reasonable for a larger airplane, not for a 172. This is not saying, you know, you get to DA and say, oh, well, I have to think about it. Oh, look, there's a runway. You know, I mean, you can't take you know 20 seconds to make your decision. You make your decision, you go. Um, but that, that is accounted for and protected for, but uh, only from the standpoint of you are starting the missed approach at that decision altitude and not you know, going down and seeing the herd of sheep on the runway or whatever. You know, to add to that point, uh, Chris and also Russ, um, it's interesting when you look at different airplanes, you have to decide when, what is your lowest altitude. And, uh, you know, when I said 400, 500 feet, there are same aircraft type can actually be 500 foot different in our decision. We could be at 900 feet and have to go around. Uh, and that's again, due to the geometry and due to the aircraft. And also due to the fact if you're on autopilot, some of these aircraft take a little bit longer to go around. Inertia is one of them. Uh, and you know, we're talking about this, but just remember that's every aircraft. We just, uh, in, in the Cherokee that I fly, the 172 I fly, uh, it's a little bit different, but you still have inertia. And, and you still have to constantly be making that decision. You're always making decisions until you actually park the airplane and shut it down and get out and tie it down. Uh, and I think that's, that's the most important point here. Uh, so, so again, Russ, going back to that original question, the missed approach point doesn't mean you can land from there. Yeah, it's true. There, uh, yeah, so back to that topic number three, I guess. <laughs> you know, um, there is no expectation to land from the missed approach point. You get to the missed approach point, if you haven't seen a runway already, you execute the missed approach procedure. If you do get there and you see the runway and there's no way you can safely descend and land, you go missed. You do the same thing. Okay. So there's no, there's no expectation of being able to land from the missed approach point uh, and, and no accounting for it. No, it's not one of the criteria involved. You know, Russ, I love that example you gave of the one where the, the, the missed approach point was at the other end of the runway at the VOR. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you're, you're definitely not going to be landing there. And I guess the one other comment people might say, well, what if it's VFR? Well, then you're on a visual approach. <laughs> so this is, it's a little bit different. Yeah, you know? you, you, Are you going to go if miss? If you're VFR or, or even if, I mean, if you've broken out and you've got plenty of room and you can, you're above circling minimums, you could basically fly a pattern back to the runway. You could circle. Um, you know, these these things are, it's generally recommended that you, you know, have a plan what you're going to do before you get there. Not just, oh, look, hey, there it is, and turn the thing. But uh, I guess it is legal. And, and that's important, too, because people ask, what if I'm VFR? Just remember that it better be clear in a million, because remember, you can go back into IFR conditions. And now you're on that missed approach, and, and you're back in IFR conditions. So, it, it, you know, it all depends on the weather. It really does. And, it, and you have to evaluate your situation. Because uh, I get that question, too. It's like, well, what if it's VFR? Well, by VFR, do you mean it's like 
no ceiling and it's clear in a million or is it a thousand foot ceiling it, it depends on on what you're looking at and uh, and if you're going to re-enter ifr conditions when you do go mist uh so that that's something to consider uh when you're looking at that but hey you know russ this has been an awesome set of topics here i mean it really has made me think and i'm sure we're gonna get a lot of feedback and obviously go to stuckmikeavcast.com and and put uh, some of your questions there and feedback i'd love to hear from people about what they do and, and what they they think about this uh and uh and just all these different uh, questions you have here but anyway russ do you had a comment yeah i just wanted to say to the listeners you know you know this is you know, part two i can't you know we have no end goal in mind you know if uh, if we get some feedback for part three we'll do part three so uh yeah if, it, certainly uh you know email uh email us if you have additional topics you want to you think you'd like to discuss or hear about that'd be great uh especially you know especially you know, instrument instructors that are seeing the same kind of questions over and over again that'd be great we can we can uh, do the research and talk about uh, whatever you want please let us know yeah remember this is the beyond the ifr check ride series this is only part two uh we'll never stop doing this um and stuck my at gmail.com is the easiest way to to email us with your questions because i know some things will come up uh, and maybe you have questions about specific things that we talked about here so very good point and all the social media facebook uh, etc you can find us out there and just ask a question there we'll get back to you if it's not right away uh, from us uh, somebody will definitely get back to you uh, and say hey we got your question we're going to answer in, the, in one of the next episodes that we do uh, on beyond the ifr check ride and remember as an instrument pilot you're constantly learning any pilot is uh, but things are always changing and people ask why do we do recurrent training um, this is why uh, there's so many things to think about and this is what makes it i think it's really a lot of fun uh, because it's so darn challenging, you know, to think about all these scenarios. And I love the fact that we have simulators. We can, you know, actually do some of these approaches, you know, start thinking about these and do some of these approaches. And, and if you have one, send it to us. Say, hey, you know, I was doing this approach. You know, what do I do here? We'd love to hear back from you. So, uh, Russ, I really do appreciate you bringing these topics up. Sure. It was a lot of fun, Carl. Thanks. Our picks of the week. Chris, I, since you're our guest this evening... I was wondering if you had a pick of the week uh, that you wanted to share with us. Uh, I do, actually. I'm going to recommend Bermuda High Soaring. Bermuda High Soaring in South Carolina. Uh, that's where I go to do all my glider flying. They are fantastic. And uh, it's a small operation, actually. Uh, family owns the airport and the, the glider port. And then they've got a lot of folks that come out, rent space, fly gliders. So it's, it's really an amazing opportunity to go out and work with these folks who are very, very experienced. As a matter of fact, maybe we'll have you back on to talk about getting your glider rating. I think that's kind of fascinating because you're a glider CFI and you have a lot of experience flying glider. Yeah, that would be a blast. So uh, we're definitely going to have you back on for that. So we're going to definitely do one of those. Um, But uh, And uh, as far as my pick of the week, I'm going to go back to uh, something that Chris did. And actually, I'm part of this book. I actually took some of the pictures for it. It's The Pilot's Guide to U.S. Airport Operations. And that's also by Chris Pazala. And uh, if you're wondering who the person was that took all those pictures of uh, Chris waving those wands and understanding all the different hand signals, uh, that was me. And that was done here at Lakeland Linder International Airport. And by the way, thanks so much to Lakeland for all this. Uh, What's interesting about this guide, this Pilot's Guide to U.S. Airport Operations, is uh, it actually has some, some really great photographs. And 
and diagrams in there. So you can use this as a reference. And there's this, like the holding position markings. Uh, and it's, it's beyond what you would see in like the aim and that type of thing, because there's actual photographs. And there's some discussion near those photographs that becomes a little more in depth. So if you're wondering about uh, the, IF, the IFR critical area, um, if you have this high IFR holding point, ILS holding point, you, you, what do I do? I mean, do I stop? What, what do I need to do? I mean, well, you're going to find out in this book. And uh, it's really, really cool. And you're going to find out where that is and how they're depicted. And also some, uh, not just the regular depictions, but some deviations from that. I'm flipping through the book now. That's what you hear me doing. But you can check that out. Uh, Three-point aviation and the pilot's guide to U.S. airport operations. I think it may even be on Amazon. Is that correct, Chris? Uh, that's correct. Uh, Amazon's the place to find it. Awesome. Okay, and we'll go out there and check that out. Of course, we'll have a link at stuckmygafcast.com for that pilot's guide to U.S. operations. Moving on to our next pick of the week is Russ Rosleski. What's your pick of the week? I make you a bet it's going to be a you video. Would, no, wait. A book. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> video. Come on. Uh, so it, it's, it's yet another book. Good. You're, I hope every, all of our listeners are building up their library. Uh, speaking of which, this one I actually got at, uh, at our local library, but on their, uh, you know, digital, uh, whatever you call it, digital online, you know, download Kindle books. So that's, that's where actually I get most of my books. So it's fantastic. Free is a good price. Uh, the book is called Cat Killer 3-2, an army pilot flying for the Marines in the Vietnam War. I want to talk about the, the title just for a moment, Cat Killer 3-2. The story in the book, how they, how they came with a call sign is, I guess, the uh, the commander of the unit was put on the spot to come up with a call sign real quick. And, well, they're flying the bird dog airplane, and dogs chase cats, so he came up with cat killer. Okay, I don't think any cats were actually harmed, um, I think. So, uh, but anyway, so it, it's, it's, it, w- it was a great book um, uh, about... Uh, forward air controllers in the Vietnam War, but specifically the the Army ones, and super specifically this Army pilot who was kind of attached to a Marine Corps unit, which is you know put him in a little bit different uh, type of operation. Um, but I think was really relatable to us as general aviation pilots in this podcast as they were flying the L nineteen, the O one Bird Dog. I mean, this is a, a two seat tandem piston-powered, single-engine, high-wing airplane, right? I mean, this is not a, a, a jet. This is not a, you know, a, a Huey helicopter or anything. You know, this is something that's pretty close to what a lot of us fly. You know, we're, his cruise speed's 100 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, he doesn't get above, you know, a few thousand feet generally, and most of the time he's pretty low. So you can really kind of put yourself in in his pilot seat a little easier uh, than you can for some of the other, well, some of the other books I've recommended too, but uh, you know, some of the other type of things you read about the Vietnam War um, because it is so similar to us. Uh, interestingly, uh, as I was reading this book, uh, a few, well, a few podcasts ago, it might be six, eight months ago, I don't know, I recommend another book called Black Cat 2-1, which is about a, a helicopter pilot who was in the same area doing the same kind of missions at the same time as, as the guy in this book. So yeah, I'm reading through and some of the operations and all were like, I've heard about this, but from a different perspective. Uh, So that was kind of interesting too, but uh, yeah, an interesting book. I I enjoyed it. Uh, He was there for his uh, one year tour of duty and the book covers the year and very little else, which was, which is good. So um, yeah, I enjoyed it. 
Awesome. And uh, and by the way, uh, you actually read all these books. I mean, I think I, I got that comment. Does he really <laughs> yeah, read these I books? Do. I said, yes, <laughs> <Really>? he does. <laughs> and it's uh, you're, you're quite the avid reader. And and what, of course, the, you know, the listeners aren't hearing is all the books I don't recommend because they're, you know, for every you know, one I do on a podcast, there's, you know, three or four that I don't even bother to mention <laughs> for various reasons. But yeah, I, I do read a lot. You're right. How many books do you read a week? I'm wondering. Is there is there a, a number that oh, you have I, on average? More than one, usually. More uh, than one, but, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, but I mean, like, this, this book, you know, wasn't, it's, it's not like a thousand page, you know, War and Peace or something, you know, it's, I don't know, two or three hundred pages, you know, it's reasonably quick read. Wow. Well, hats off to you. I think that's so important to read. I mean, it, you learn so much that way. <laughs> And you're a good a good example to the to li- for the listeners too is, you know, get out there and read these books that we talked about and uh, and like the ones we recommended here, and also why well, go out and read that far aim, uh, just take it one little section and look into stuff and uh, don't read too many big sections because especially if you can't get to sleep it's a good item to read but uh, in general uh, there's some really good stuff in there I I recommend just doing a little bit each you know kind of each day just to take a, a paragraph or so just to study something to get ready for your instrument check ride by the way this beyond the IFR check ride I'd love to hear your your feedback about this and how you've liked it and if you want to hear more of these type of episodes where we go do a deep dive as a matter of fact on our next uh, beyond the IFR check ride I'm going to do as our, our number one question uh, is uh, concerning because I mentioned it when I talked about the book. Remember the book about the pilot's guide to U.S. airport operations by Chris Pazala? Is the ILS critical hold position? You know, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about this in the next one of these beyond the IFR check ride. What is it, and when are you required to comply with that critical area holding short of that holding point, that hold position marker? When do you have to comply with that? And uh, so. There's a couple answers to that question, and uh, I know some people are going to say depends. Well, we're going to find out why it depends in the next Beyond the IFR check ride, and that'll be in part number three, our first question we do. If you have the other ones, please write us uh, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. Uh, really appreciate your listening, but one thing I want you to really encourage you to do is go out and research some of these things that we talked about. Uh, start coming up with some of your questions uh, about the next episode for Beyond the IFR Check Ride. We're definitely going to have uh, Chris Bazala back and uh, talk a little bit more about getting your next rating in a glider. Um, but I think it's, it's really, really important to, to when you're, you're thinking about flying, if you haven't been flying in a while, is to chair fly. Learn about certain things. Think about doing your eye, even if you're not instrument rated, uh, think about getting that rating. But most importantly, get out there, do some aviating, have some fun, uh, and, and just spread the aviation love out there. And, uh, and we love doing this and bringing this podcast to you. And, and, and please go check out some of our sponsors. And if you want to be part of that project of helping people and helping people move forward in their careers and helping people move forward in, in their ratings, just go out to suckmikeavcast.com slash pay it forward but we really appreciate you don't forget to get out there do some flying have some fun and we'll talk to you next episode safe flying out there you've been listening to the stuck mike abcast 
Members of the Stock Mike Appcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.